0: Hi, I'm Ted Seides from Capital Allocators, and I am panicked about my teenage children.
1: Yo, Mr. Howard, sir. That's me. We've had a month of rain here. Yeah, what's up with that? Does it bother you? I just kind of am ready to get, a, I mean, we have never had a winter here in Phoenix. You just lather up and go outside and take a shower out there. <laughs> yeah, it's like the fjords. <laughs> I'm getting ready already for spring. Got the Super Bowl, Phoenix Open. We've got, um, well, that's it. There's nothing else going <laughs> on in Phoenix. <laughs> Are you the, biking these days? I'm biking a lot. I'm doing a the boys, we got one coming up south of France, and I've been doing a couple hard rides, and I've been working out with a trainer. I don't have a great schedule, but this trainer's kicking my ass. We're working on, not so much cardio, we're working, it's all bands and sit-ups, and it's like really weird, no weights. It's just really about uh, balance and uh, core strength. So it's been, that's my weakest. I'm weak everywhere, but that is my weakest. All right. So, I have a really fun guest today and fun. If you're a geek and like uh, money and capital and podcasts and talking about hedge funds and capital allocation. So my friend Ted Seides is the founder of capital allocators, an ecosystem that includes a podcast events, education, advisory services. I was introduced to Ted um, four or five years ago by Jan von Eck, who we've had on the podcast And he said, you got to listen to Ted's podcast. He helps. You know, one of the things he's done over the years, he he worked as a founder of Protégé Partners and began his career at Yale University Investment Office. So he knows his his way around my world and advises a lot of people of funds like ourselves, but more in the hedge fund space, how to go about raising capital, presenting themselves. BA from Yale University. He would have told us anybody who goes to Yale mentions that usually in the first thirty seconds. <laughs> so now we've saved him the embarrassment and an MBA from Harvard Business School. So I, how smart could they be? He what agreed to come on my podcast. Bo- what did he talk to us? And we got Ethan on the side, so we have a uh, three ASU people in oh, here. I know he's going to hang up real soon now. Yeah, yeah. well he doesn't know that we're talking about him. No, yet. but, but you know he he'll know. It. So one of the most popular podcasts around investing in, in capital. 10 million downloads. Uh, what else can I say about him? He has no agenda because he has his own podcast and he talks about the world that he lives in. I What catches my eye always about Ted, I checked in with him recently just to talk about fraud because he, you know, with the FTX stuff, you know, he was around in the days of Bernie Madoff allocating and, and he has a really different take on how, managers should think about this, the VC industry, hedge fund industry, with respect to fraud. So I wanted to come on and talk a a different take. And then obviously the SEC now, randomly over the last few days, is now talking about uh, the ability to um, that uh, LPs can sue venture capitalists for bad investing. So I want to get, I'm sure it'll be a different, yeah, so canoe. call your lawyer. Yeah. so anyways, let's get Ted, and he's panicked. I saw that he's panicked about, uh, which he should be, he has twin 17-year-olds. hes I don't even know, he may not even be here. People, people are probably just running around his house playing practical jokes on him. And so he's got three kids, two twins. My wife's a twin. So uh, we've talked about that. But anyways, let's get him on and talk about uh, the market. Ted. Hello, Howard. What's going on? How's the eye? Oh, everything's fine. Okay,
0: I will say that usually when you do something like this, people give you these incredibly flattering intros, and then you come on. Well, you
1: wrote it. I'm just reading what you wrote.
0: Yeah, but you know, I know you, Howard. I have, a, <laughs> I have a feeling that whatever you may have said before I came on the show isn't quite as flattering as what other people. And I appreciate that.
1: So, so what is it that makes a young white man want to go to Harvard and Yale? What kind of upbringing creates that person?
0: Wrote um, learning. Like, you know, you're on a track, you're on someone else's path, and that's where it takes you. Better that than drugs and alcohol, but it works, you know.
1: Listen, I had Trunk Fan on. I don't know who's going to air first, but he's doing pretty well and he was a blackout drunk, he said. And, and he went to McGill and he now Elon Musk talks to him on Twitter and we can't get Elon to talk to us.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think that um, for the most part, because I've had this conversation with my kids and others, for the most part, the probability distribution of outcomes of flat-out drunks is sort of takes a different trajectory than the probability distribution of outcomes of some other educational institutions that are more well-known. So not to say that the drunk can't become a superstar or that people I went to school with can't become complete jokers, and some of them have. Yeah,
1: I've backed um, a few out of Harvard. So with your kids, so you went to Harvard, and you know, what's the pressure on your kids? How do they top that?
0: zero like none yeah you know, I have three kids I have twin boy girl, 17 year olds and a 13 year old boy um I didn't like the pressure that I felt when I was a kid and I never put it on them and you now my older son is not um like just say academics aren't his thing so th- that was never a chance my <laughs> daughter's very very sharp but she has no interest she wants she's smart she wants to go somewhere warm somewhere fun and she has no interest and i i don't Yale isn't the place it was when I was there, so I'm not sure I would want to go there if I could today. So
1: there you go. And so the path back then, because you are 50, 49? Yeah, 52. Okay, so I'm 57. So when I was in Toronto growing up, we've talked about this here, you know, there were no internet, and Jewish family, upper middle class, you were lawyer, doctor, accountant. Your friends were on all on the same path, public or yep. private school. But today, there is no path other than, like, don't, let your kids become blackout drunks, but there really is no path. And there's also some pretty good schools of thought both on the 10,000 hours and being a generalist. And as, a, as someone who reads and writes a lot and talks to a lot of smart people, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I don't, Um but I think you're right. I think that the, the aperture of opportunity is a lot wider than it was, but it also means that it can be a little bit harder to navigate, like 17, yes, there are some brilliant 17 year olds who are so smart and so interested that they've found your podcast and mine mm-hmm. but for the most part i don't know i look at through the lens of my kids they don't know what they want to do and they shouldn't they're 17.
1: yeah i have ethan who's 22 he's kind of taken a half year ahead sitting here and and he was curated by just reading my, he liked my blog enough that he's reached out in such a smart way. I'm going, he's already self, who cares what school he went to? If he understands what's going on on this blog, then they're already way ahead of the curve. Is that something that you would say about someone who gets what you're doing?
0: Um, I I think someone who's engaged at that age in any discipline, it doesn't matter if it's what you're talking Mm -hmm. about or I'm talking about or something else, they're able to find their own passion. That's the best path.
1: It really is. huh? For my son, it was golf and, you know, because we pushed so hard on like school, it took longer for that to emerge. Right. But he still found it on his own, like just on the internet and figuring out, um, collab and degrees. So he's a, in the PGA program at UNLV. So that's self found took maybe an extra five years. Cause maybe if he was 18 and knew that existed, he wouldn't have wasted two years, you know? So I think it is true when they find it themselves, it's just so much easier. Yeah. And who knows where it goes, right? Like
0: golf could turn into statistics. It could turn into business. It could turn it like, who knows?
1: Like you said, like golf isn't just about being a pro golfer or working in a pro shop. It's the PGA's like the NFL at this point. Now with Live, you know, basically PGA is proven to be breakable. They're not the NFL. So when USFL, I was just talking about today, when USFL broke off from NFL, it didn't work. So the NFL became stronger. And now that Live has broken off and actually gotten stronger, it's over for the PGA. So golf is actually, it's like kind of Jurassic Park golf is, is not going to be <laughs> the same, right? Yeah. It's, you can't put it back in the box. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think if you circle back, you know, if, if I, if you look at the path you took or the path that I took, I would advise meaning the stuff that you did to get to where you've done followed your interest, right? It's like comedy and then media and then investing and then tech. Like it's just following your interest. And my path was get good grades, go to the best school you can, go get a job that like looks good and can make money. And eventually you find your way within that. Um, but you know, if I were doing it again, I would follow your path. I'd like find your, find something you're really interested in. It doesn't have to be like your deep
1: life's mission, passion, something you're really interested in, and then just pull the thread and see where it goes. That's a really good point because, you know, because I agree, but when I was up until I wasn't good in school, I was great in school because there was a path and my friend, we all had the same friend group and we all study together and we all put that pressure on ourselves. But then college happened and certain people broke away as some of my friends just know they wanted to be in law. And I just looked at the textbooks and said, well, that, and that's kind of what, uh, what happened. So really I wasted a lot of time going down that path. So I was doing stand up comedy, but there was no way in my mind I was going to bring that up to my parents. So, so I did both. I got the grades. You know, it's really an interesting point in time. And like you said, I think that the young people suffer because of this endless opportunity, because they can go in any direction, which probably hampers them in some way, because there's too many directions. Yeah.
0: So there you have it. I'm I'm panicked. I've got 17-year-olds. Who knows (laughs) what they're going to do? You're in the heat of it.
1: So, with respect to your business, how did you know to break off? Like, what was the point where you said, I'm going on my own and, and going down the media route? What was it for you?
0: It was purely um, serendipity and accident to some extent. So, I, I, as you know, I had been involved in the kind of institutional fund side and hedge funds, investing in hedge funds for a long time. And the business that I was running with the partner I started with in 2015, it, it was just time to move on for me. And- That was a combination of internal issues and external issues. Most partnerships have internal issues. External environment was harder for hedge funds. I didn't really believe in what we were doing as much. The problem with it is that over twenty plus years, the skill set I had built up was investing in managers, and that skill set, for a variety of reasons, was sort of out of favor when I left. So it wasn't the case I was ready to build my own asset management business and you know do what I knew how to do, but I also knew putting on any kind of commercial lens that there wasn't a business to be had there anymore, particularly in the hedge fund side. Hmm. So I didn't know what to do. And I stepped away and I had a bunch of people approach me about, hey, would you want to do this? And I was like, no, that doesn't sound good. No, those. And one of my friends said, don't say no, just say yes and date them before you get married. So that turned into a consulting type stuff. And one of the things along the way was... I got asked to go on a couple podcasts. I had written a book about startup hedge funds and I didn't really want to spend time with that world. But yeah, you know, I was on a couple podcasts and it just demystified it. Like I just felt like, hey, we're just two people talking on a microphone. And one day I woke up and said, huh, hey, maybe I'll go like talk to my old friends so I won't be hedge fund guy anymore. I can go be investment guy again, mm. not thinking anything of it other than I was going crazy because I had too much time on my hands. And, um, And then it just kept going. So I had a series of other roles along the way for a couple of years. A good buddy of mine asked me to help him build out what would be his family office. He was in the process of selling his asset management company and he sold it to a public company and then the deal didn't go through. And so all these things were happening and I was just, I just kept going with the podcast. And when that in particular sort of fell away, advertisers started calling and I said, oh, I guess this is a business. So it was purely accidental to go into the media side I don't even think I embraced it as the thing I was doing until you know
1: four years in wow and was it love at first sight when you started it or what was it like because 10 million podcasts today uh listeners what uh yeah what um, when did you know it was something that like worked I'll, I'll let you know next week <laughs> the uh, it's true' you're so not doing I, it for the you do
0: you don't you're not really but go no, ahead. I mean it's a business now but when I started it, I never once. Like I used to joke, this is the, the next coming of .dot com. Like Howard, let me explain my business model to you. I'm going to call up my friends, and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, let's have a conversation and record it, and we'll share it with people for free."
1: How's that sound as a business model? Genius. it's, it's awesome. It I sounds mean, like you didn't go to Yale or Harvard. You might have well, to I didn't. You
0: know, I didn't. I, I didn't have a .dot com business either. So, um, so no, of course it didn't sound like or or feel like a business. I would say that, you know, half or more of the time I spend is the exact same way I did for 20 years with just a different outcome. So it used to be I'd have conversations with money managers, I'd have conversations with my friends who are investing in managers, and you'd make decisions about allocating capital and then do that. And so the conversations at times are a little bit different, but for the most part, it's the same thing. And this was the output was, okay, I'm just going to take the recording, make it sound a little bit better and share it with people. Right. What I didn't appreciate when I started it is that in the institutional investing world, there's a degree of opacity. I mean, you could say there's opaque investments and things like that, but there's a degree of opacity in like who these people are and what they do and how do they do it. And it's not just into the public, but it was across each other. So what I meant by that is I would go around and talk to you know a bunch of friends that were CIOs, endowments, foundations, pension funds, doesn't make a difference. and, no one had ever had that kind of conversation with them. Like, talk to me for an hour about who you are and what you do and how you do it. Because mm. they're not commercial. Like mm. They generally have one client. And there's, there was no forum for them to do it. And so I didn't even realize that at the time Got it. and until like I started hearing that from some of the people in the business. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. By the way, that doesn't make it a business because that just means you're putting out content that has some value to people, which is great. Like, it's mm-hmm. fun to do that. And then, you know, you sort of figure it out, like, who's the customer? And so it's a business, right? Who's the customer? I don't know. Is the customer the listener? Eh, Yeah, kind of. Is it the guest? I think so. Is it the ad sponsor? Well, for sure, they're paying the bills. like And those are three different audiences. It's really tricky to, like, when you start thinking about it as a business, you know, is there a customer acquisition cost? If there is, what's the return on that? And how do you measure it? And all those kind of things that come up when you start thinking about it as a business, which is fun. It doesn't change
1: the way I go about the show at all. Let me geek out a bit, just this is boring to you, but I'm not a hedge fund guy, but even though I ran a hedge fund for, I don't know, 15 years poorly, or survived, but never liked it. Do hedge fund managers like what they do in the hedge fund space, or are they miserable fucks like I was?
0: Yeah, most most of the really good ones love it. And the Mm -hmm. the question is, what is it that they love? Mm. Some of them love just the competition of winning. And that might mean Putting points on the board. It might mean doing better than their peers. There's a you know, zero sum game competitive aspect of public markets that some people just love. Some people love the analytical side of it. Some people love the trading side of it. And then some just love money. And those are the ones that flame out.
1: So if you love money, that was a sign that you, if they love money, that was a, a filter for you? No, they all love money. Were you filtering for that when you interviewed people? Like what was a trait that made them somebody that you? Like for me, when I look back at founders, it's like, oh, obvious. Yeah. Uh, or somebody that builds a billion dollar company. What is it for a hedge fund that worked? Because it seems more fleeting.
0: Yeah. I, the persistence is a lot harder than it is in, you know, companies or venture capital yeah. or something like that. So over time, it's the passion and the sort of the the insight and the ability to see around corners um, because it's unlike a lot of other forms of investing, hedge funds, it's impossible to stay still. It's impossible to stay still with your portfolio construction. It's impossible to stay still with the markets. It's impossible to stay still with a particular style. So you have to kind of have somebody who understands who they are and what they do well and that they're expressing that, but that also has this kind of you know, degree of worldly wisdom to be able to pivot when that's appropriate and to communicate why that's consistent with what they were
1: doing before. So it's a really complex puzzle. Yeah. I would say I've done everything hard. Uh, Golf may be the hardest thing to do, not forgetting about the money part of it. I would say as a career, being an entrepreneur, being a venture investor, or being a hedge fund guy or doing stand up in front of a live audience, the hedge fund is the, the one thing I would never... If someone said, Howard, you got two choices you know, end of the world, you're going to have to go on stage and start from scratch or be a hedge fund manager, I would go into comedy first. That's how That's much it. I sucked at it or hated it or was misaligned. I think it is the hardest job in the world, just maybe why they're the weirdest, strangest people.
0: <laughs> it's also fairly heterogeneous, right? So if you're talking about long, short equity investing, the thing that always struck me as being a good long investor is not the same skill set as being it's a totally short, different. short investor.
1: So how do you put those together? Yeah. And what was the strategy that you think that you like to follow? What was it that, that interested you? I have
0: always been a moth to the flame for just really, really smart people who are insightful, both about the underlying investments and about you know, how they go about the craft. Um, so you know, if you're talking about long short equity, I preferred fundamentally driven guys who really tried to get research edge but that also understood the science of portfolio
1: construction Mm -hmm. and so who is the person that does that best today who is the someone where they read or or show up on tv or somewhere where you just have to listen
0: well those are two different questions okay Um, so answer them both so at scale the well there's the platform hedge funds that's a different animal but they've clearly Mm. proven that they know what they're doing that is a risk management portfolio construction feat to manage leverage at scale. I I think if you're looking at an organization or a person or two, just to personify it more, um, Viking has continued to reproduce strong returns in spite of significant senior level turnover over years, not like every year there's people coming in and out. And so there's a understanding of fundamental analysis and there's a deep understanding of portfolio construction that they nail. And then as an individual who I don't know by the way, I don't know Dan Loeb, but uh-huh. to watch what he's done over the years from basically coming close to going out of business in 08 to you know being an event driven investor to adding credit, to adding structured credit, to understanding shorting, to being an activist where he started, like it's pretty phenomenal to see the success he's had in different market environments and different disciplines, just generally being um, very thoughtful and right about what he's doing. But I've never been like inside
1: that organization to really know how it works. Have you met Dan? Never. I met him. He just it took him thirty seconds to just, just strip me naked, <laughs> tear me down. <laughs> God, I got introduced to Matt. He's a partner here. Matt was doing data and credit for five five plus years for Loeb. I think Dan said uh, on the way out, he says, listen, uh, your bonus is I'm not suing you. So it takes that type of person. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind. That's very kind. kind. And also, don't worry—you are not going to be very successful. You are going to work for social leverage. That's that Lindzen character that I passed on. Yeah. The, right. uh, but I had one meeting with him, and I—it was a funny story because Matt was here at Canute, and we yeah. told the story. And I was like, "This isn't going to work." And Matt was like, "He's going to love you." And we go into this meeting, and it took about thirty seconds to say it. he was just mad that he was in the meeting, so it was—it was pretty embarrassing for me. Yes. But there is something about even who he hires, because I just—you know—Matt was at WorldQuant before that. And was friends with me and understood he was just social and geeky and fundamental and you know you, you throw war and dan Loeb on your resume five years each in bloomberg i'm like if we could get a guy like that as social leverage is great so it's just fun knowing that a weird firm like ours can attract that world which is why i like venture capital and i think you're even interested in this whole space yeah And what do you make of this last year like what's obvious in hindsight well all of it was obvious in hindsight what was impossible
0: to know was timing um and i probably wrote stuff about this two years ago i mean the bubble-like characteristics that you know depending on where you sat if it was in tech a lot of it looked like what was going on in 2000. crypto probably even more so um the problem with investing is that you never know when it's going to roll over. And the rational people who say, oh, this is crazy, you probably would have been saying it for five years. And if you measured the six-year period, you're probably better off being in the game. Um, So there's always people crying from the roof saying, hey, I told you so now, and who were certainly calling off warning shots before. Um, But it's very, very rare that somebody kind of calls the warning shot, gets out of the way, and then everything rolls over. It usually goes on for years. And so, um, but I think that all of it was knowable, but it was impossible to know when. And that's the challenge.
1: That is a challenge. I just reposted um, Bill Gurley from 2016, just talking about what we're seeing today. And he was pretty confident back in 2016. He didn't say this is going to happen, but if you read it today, you're like, oh, I wish I had just read that again in 2021. And then you read it today and go, oh my God, you know, like we all knew it. And it's, it's rather interesting. So, which brings me to like your article just recently about fraud. So I, you know, everybody's beating themselves up. You have a different viewpoint of this for someone in the industry. So, so walk through how you think about fraud in this industry and and allocation, how it happens.
0: Well, let me go back one month or so before this stuff really happened, because there was this there was this guy on this podcast, uh, Howard Lyndon, has this show called Panic with Friends, doing an annual review and said said in December, fraud is fraud. Um, and I heard this a long, long time ago from Michael Price, who passed away last year, a famous value investor. He got caught in an accounting fraud in the mid nineties, and I had a chance to sit down with him and and ask him what he learned. And he said absolutely nothing. I was like, wait, what? Like I'm I'm 20 something years old. You, know, you didn't learn anything. Like, and he said, "Look, when you come into a fraud, you spend all your time evaluating an opportunity, and somewhere in the back of your head, maybe if if you don't you think the person seems like a slime ball, they rub you the wrong way, whatever. There's like something in the back of your head. Like one percent of your time, maybe you say, hey, is, is all the stuff I just saw real?'" And the problem is that a true fraudster, like someone who's a Ponzi schemer or something, something that's bad. They spend all of their time staying ahead of you. Um, So, you know, Michael said 99% of your time doing the analysis, 1% of your time trying to figure out if what you saw is real. And they spend 100% of their time making sure they stay a couple steps ahead of you. And so, you know, Madoff was probably the best example of that. And Madoff's a funny one to talk about because, you know, they just came out with this Netflix documentary that's quite I watched it. I watched it. We
1: talked about it. Yeah. And
0: my wife saw it and she didn't really know the story. And she's like, wow, these SEC people blew it and all I'm like, well, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Oh, Markopoulos, how could they not listen to him? Well, yeah. But when you were in it at the time, you know, most people had heard of Madoff. And Madoff is a a good one because late in the game, you know, there were, by the time the industry had institutionalized to some extent, there were were plenty of yellow, if not red flags with Madoff. Um, Right. But it doesn't stop people from staying in it who've been in it for a long time. And it doesn't mean that somebody said, oh, there's a red flag, therefore it's a fraud. And I could walk you through all kinds of like, yes, buts from hedge funds back then. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's easy to say. And like, I do think off was knowable for people who dove in, but you know, who cares? Like, why would you dive in? If, if you don't like it, you move on and spend your time with the funds you do like. And so that's kind of the experience most of you had. Correct. And now you have SBF and FTX. Um, uh-huh. we'll see, right? Like, sure looks bad. He's sure behaving in a strangely <laughs> transparent way for someone who stole funds and committed fraud. So, you know, we'll see. I I, I do I, I really respect what Bill Ackman put out on Twitter saying, look, it's still innocent until proven guilty. And public discourse says he's guilty. There's a lot of signs he's guilty, but let's just assume that it's really bad, right? Uh huh. Um like nobody knew. And I how, didn't how I had him on my podcast. Uh you know? Yeah, but I how could I, you know if you were an investor in FTX? That's an exchange, like, that's an unbelievable business. Like Volumes are huge. Like, how are you supposed to know that the guy was like taking the funds to support his, you know, secret hedge fund on the side? And, you know, you're you guys are more in the crypto world than I am, but they're all 25 year olds running around without adult supervision.
1: Yeah. So, like, he almost <laughs> aged
0: out on me. I was like, hey, you're a little <laughs> old. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, You know, in retrospect, everybody was smart and everybody knew about it, but I've seen enough of these happen over the years. And those are the the highest profile ones. There are lots and lots of lower profile ones that you come across where firstly, you just never would know. And the second is there is this dynamic that um, sometimes what becomes a fraud or becomes a problem doesn't start that way. And I think that's probably true of both Madoffs. And SBF, where they probably had a legitimate business. In Madoff's case, probably lost some money. You start you start punting on it, you start punting on it more. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, you know, what are we gonna do? Yeah. Same thing with, with Alameda, right? And so, you know, when when people go out and say, all these people invested in these frauds, like their due diligence sucks, and Sequoia's like, oh my God, we made a mistake. Well, of course they did. But I'm not sure it was a due
1: diligence mistake. Is a judgment mistake? Yeah, I, I, I'll flip back to this, because this is my favorite topic, because I had him on my podcast, Canute. And he wasn't, I wouldn't say delightful, but it was fun. Like Oh, no, you know, he was great. I did typical higher web uh, boxers briefs. We, <laughs> we talked about Tether, because people were asking me to talk about Tether. What's the point of me talking about Tether? I don't understand it then, I don't understand it now. He gave some gibberish answer. You know, I wish I had never asked him about Tether, because, you know, uh, he was probably lying. But I wouldn't have known either way. So, you know, I was asking about dating life. I mean, I don't know. He struggled with uh, the dating life questions more than the tether questions, but I don't know what the question, if, if someone is waking up every day to steal from you, you're fucked. Correct. I'm so grateful that in many ways I was spared being so close to the flame, right? Like, it feels like I just walked by a building that imploded and only lost a finger because a lot of people are going down and they're all turning what's his name the president of the u.s brett harrison i forget his name is is now coming out saying Ay. so i think whether it's it's not pretty but when someone is waking up every day living a lie it's hard to figure it out it's really hard you know there's another aspect to it which is
0: uh say process versus outcome In the sense that when something like this happens, there are a lot of darts thrown at the people who were defrauded. Like there has to be an assumption that Sequoia has a bad due diligence process because they have, you know, chat room stuff saying, oh my God, I love this guy. Um, But Madoff, nobody lost money, right? Because he got it all back, or yeah, they got it all back. Now they didn't. Get back what they thought they had because he right. allegedly was reporting gains. But people got back what they put in. Um, you know, I've seen investments go to zero with no fraud. Right? Somebody makes a mistake. A venture capital investment goes to zero all the time with no fraud. It happens a lot. And so, like, fraud is one of the risks. They're the ones that you know you feel stupid about. That smack you in the face that you didn't see coming. But so is a change in a market. So is a you know a change in regulation. So it a, you know, a change in customer concentration that goes wrong. It's just one of the risks that you bear. It's just, it just feels worse because the person involved was the one like strictly culpable. Whereas, you know, if a business fails, it's, you know, there's 25 different factors why it might have failed.
1: Yeah. So for Michael Price, it was more about portfolio construction. Fraud's just... You spend all your time looking for fraud. You're just going to struggle with portfolio construction. You won't. You won't invest.
0: Well, there's a little bit of that, right? There's also. I mean, it's a real head scratcher for concentrated portfolios, right? Like, for how sure. do you? What? What? A degree of concentration is prudent that you don't have this left tail outcome. Um, and then it goes to like what you said about SBF, which is at what po- You know, it's different if you're on a podcast and if you're trying to do due diligence for an investment opportunity, right. but. You know, at what point in time when you're not comfortable with something that you can't quite put your finger on, but you're not comfortable with it, do you just walk away? Yeah. Um, And that's where you get into FOMO, right? Like, um, by the way, nobody ever really knew what was going on at Renaissance Medallion. It's clearly not a fraud because everybody already got their money back on top of astronomical returns, but there's not that much different in saying, oh, it's opaque, like, they don't really tell you much. I guess you could look at, you know, thousands of thousands of securities they own. You have no idea how they get there. It's probably true of most quantitative strategies. So once you start peeling that away from just, oh, this this was so obvious because they didn't have controls, like, come on, go look at all the crypto businesses, which of them have like proper accounting controls in place. So, you know, my guess is less than half. Yeah, right. Um, and there's an element in, and particularly in
1: startups, right? There's an element of fake it till you make it. It's slippage. I call it all slippage. What hurts is the criminal slippage. Like Absolutely. as soon as you wire money, there's slippage. As soon as you wire money, to the founder, what, what bank are you using? So it's just degree of slippage, whether you're owning a restaurant and the guys are overpouring or stealing cash. Um, we're in the business of, of minimizing slippage because things go to zero. So we teach our founders like, listen, you got to focus on the North star. There's going to be slippage. Uh, I think what hurts here is that this was criminal slippage. There was just, you know, he had a business. There's no reason, theoretically, to steal. Um, And now we're just trying to figure out if it was from the start a steal. Because, you know, when you look at, like, some of the later acquisitions, that's when it becomes, like, head scratches. Like, why are you buying? If you're doing so well, why are you buying bad businesses? You know? Yeah. So that's when it became weird for me. Yeah,
0: and, you know, buying at ridiculous valuations of some and things like there's there's head scratching for sure you know there's also this question of in almost any investment opportunity we're talking about in, in backing people mm-hmm. and there are so many examples you know you can go all the way back to michael milken or david sokol who was going to be one of berkshire hathaway's heir parents to run the business where they're clearly doing so much right but then something tipped over the edge. You know, and there's questions of whether Milken did anything wrong or it was just Rudy Giuliani gone arrived. That's a whole separate thing. But like David Sokol, you're an heir apparent to run Berkshire Hathaway and you do insider trading on Lubrizol to make like $200,000. Like it just, yeah, it, you know, that's clearly not about money, but it's about something. It's, is it about control? Is it about, yeah, who knows? And, you get into this question of like, how much can you really know about somebody else? And most of the time, you know, people talk about pattern recognition and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's true. And like, that's why you can still invest, even though these things can happen from time to time. But when you do come across one that is just like, you never could have imagined what Sam would have done this stuff or some other folks that you come across, it kind of throws you at times and go, well, how much do I really know about anybody?
1: Yeah, no. I mean, it's been getting easier for me to just—I wouldn't say laugh about it because there's money involved and people were really hurt. But like your article and this discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago, now now is it just a reminder that they're out there, these crazies? So the SEC's response to this—is that worry at all? Or is this a nothing burger, like saying, "Oh, the VC's"? Like that's—that just seems. Why are they doing this? Knowing what you—knowing what you wrote and what you've just told me. How is the SEC getting involved in in holding venture capital? Because you're not letting the venture capitalists off the hook, you're saying, come on, people, like this this if the guy wakes up to defraud you, ignore the goofy chat room at Sequoia, like that's their job of taking risk. Uh so with the SEC now sticking their nose and saying venture you know, maybe changing the rules here, what what's your initial take on that? Well, first does it surprise you that the SEC might be a little <laughs> bit late? <laughs> no. But, you know, the easy jokes, we'll give you the easy one because we could spend hours. Of, I don't want to, like, make it personal, but, like, it's so frustrating because you're, like, it's not, you know, your wife even had a comment about yeah, but Bernie Madoff. It's not so. personal. It's it's just incentives, right? They're government yeah.
0: employees, paid a government wage with a lot on their plate and a massive agenda. It's just no surprise that they can't get ahead of somebody who's, you know, trying to defraud people. Before you get too upset about changing the rules and people can come after venture capitalists, like wait a little bit. There's a fair amount of money and a fair amount of lobbying on the side of capitalism that oh, right. usually not puts kind of some happened. rationality into this before it's all said and done. So I don't really you know, I don't I don't see a great um, I don't see a great reason to have any sort of opinions about what the SEC may or may not do until things really move a lot further down the road.
1: All right. And so what is it out there today? If you had a choice between investing yourself in startups or with your risk capital or S&P or hedge funds, are you still into like meeting hedge funds and talking to them? Is that something that interests you? Intellectually, yes. For capital, no. (laughs) And I haven't really
0: invested, There's, with one exception, some biotech stuff. I haven't invested in hedge funds since I left Protégé. And the reason is that they're just highly tax inefficient. And even in my huh. years of protege, by the time I left, ninety plus percent of the assets were tax-exempt investors. Huh. So they're not great vehicles for for taxable investors, for the most part. There are some strategies that are fine. So I don't I don't have a lot of capital in hedge funds. I invest. There are two types of things I've always liked. I like cash flowy stuff. So whether that's company, I don't invest in a lot of direct businesses because I've just never been, I don't take the time to do proper analysis. I know how competitive it is. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, mm-hmm. there's something that looks pretty bulletproof in the public markets that I'll buy, or I like these kind of niche credit strategies. Our buddy Ali Hamed, I invest with and in his credit uh-huh. strategy. That, We're LPs there. Yeah. yeah. And there are, there are a couple like that 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 are really interesting um, and some that are just really, really cool in what people are doing. So I like that. And then, yeah, I-, I I have a few investments in early stage companies, but I am not an experienced venture investor. So I'm a free rider there. Sometimes you come across something that either there's somebody I know who's deeply involved Who, um, you know, it's great. Like I'm invested in the Aura Ring, that company, and a good buddy mm-hmm. of mine's on the board and he
1: showed, I've heard it's a fraud. But that's rumored. If it
0: is, I, you know, my device still seems to work. So maybe the business, I don't know. Um, <laughs> There's just a guy moving dials at Aura headquarters yeah. and like, then with just knobs. I invested, you know, Michael Batnick told me about this this company, Virgil, um, that is a guy that I knew, uh, Josh Smith, from a business he built, Solovis, which is a sort of a, a software business for allocators. And then he brought it to the RIA world. So mm. he's he has this great, basically a risk tool that maps to financial statements from Schwab or, you know, Fidelity or whoever it is. And he can help a financial advisor understand using technology and data very quickly what somebody owns and how much it costs Hmm. them. So they're using it to help financial advisors who are pitching for business look at somebody's assets and say, here's what you own. Here's what we could do differently. And it's an amazingly good idea and it's something that i understand because i you know understand the business and i think somewhere along the way i'll be able to help them either with exposure or something like that so every now and then there's a direct company i love those i love the lottery ticket type stuff i'm just not in the ecosystem to know if what people are throwing, like, it's a classic patsy at the poker table. If someone's showing me something, like, why are they showing me? But it depends who showing me. Now that I know
1: this. Right. You can show me. It's stuff. not like I'm going to come to you with a soda deal and go, Ted's going to make this work for me, but uh, I'm doing a lot of wealth management. So I send stuff to bat and Doug boat. you know, I stack my guests to learn the industry because I believe that wealth management, not sexy is probably a fifty year growth industry at this point. Yeah. You know, while while we are worried about Google and Facebook, uh, Schwab snuck up and controls the custodial pipe. Yeah. Well so Absolutely. we're gonna have a huge custodial problem and then they like, I don't want to work with Schwab. I don't want an eight hundred number. Uh, I don't want some, you know, kind of call center working for me. And I know people that work at Schwab. I don't want them near my money. They're overemployed. <laughs> They're lovely people. They're overpaid and Chuck's golfing. So I'm super bullish on the wealth management industry. Why would I go to Sequoia versus calling you? So I don't think it's about the patsy on the I think people need to understand that like investing is really not so much domain expertise, but like you got to surround a company with people that know, you know, all the generals in the field where all the soldiers are and where the puck is going in a certain industry. You can't just take a macro look like you did and, and say, Oh, internet anymore. Internet is everywhere. So I actually think, you're underselling yourself. What we believe is social leverage uh, is that the batniks of the world, whether he's a good investor or not, I, I can't judge, but whether Mike knows, cause he plays with the products and and that. So, you know, with wealth management, I, I'm not looking to call Andreessen. I know they have the capital to, to build stuff, but I'm looking at people who are actually using this. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. So yeah, like I, I haven't spent a lot of time trying to find a sourcing funnel right? With people like you, with people like Michael. But that's the, that's one way I could go about doing it for sure.
1: But doing the podcast hasn't created that for you, or is it more just other areas? You're just treating it as simply as a business. This will lead to my conferences. This will lead to just my business I'm building. I
0: wouldn't, I wouldn't say that either. Um, it is the world that I've occupied my whole career, which is mostly manager selection. Um, so the people I interview are chief investment officers of large pools of capital, sometimes some of their favorite money managers. But what I don't get into are deals and, and building individual businesses. It's much more about strategy and investment strategies
1: than it is individual company investments. So today, capital Allocators podcast, the The person that will like or who should listen, what, what should they expect?
0: What should they expect? They should expect to learn about the people who are deploying huge sums of money who they are how they go about doing it um and what are some of the challenges they face yeah and you've been doing it now five years yeah it's coming up on six on the podcast
1: well congrats it's awesome thank you it's great to finally get you here i think the the lesson of this world is the deeper you go i have this other thesis now that uh, we don't know what's going for but the playbook that just worked for 15 years is not going to work you know but for a select few so i think this is the era you know where the deeper you go the more oil you get per se you know and that oil is you know satisfaction um uh, you know you don't have to please everybody yeah that makes sense well it's great so how do people
0: find you Everything's housed under our website, capitalallocators.com. There's a free mailing list, which only goes out unlike yours. I don't know how you do this daily, but ours goes out once a
1: month. And yeah, everything sort of spawns from there. All right, buddy. Well, this is great. I got way more to ask, but you know, I figure people can go to the podcast and really get a flavor for this instead of me. I kind of wanted to just talk about stuff I wanted to talk about. So I appreciate you keeping it agenda-free so you know, people will come to you and, and know what to expect. I appreciate your time, my man. Thanks for the discussion about this and some of the coaching. And, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks, Howard. Always appreciate it. Knute. Yes. A little different. Yeah. So, so what I would want for people here is like, you really want to understand how the sausage is made and how people think at this level and who you're up against. That's right. why I got out of the business. Cause people like Ted are in the business. So it's not like good or bad. It's not like you can't start a hedge fund, but generally this is why I talk people that call me out of being a VC or just being a hedge fund. You are competing against the machine and the machine is there to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> so it's very hard to have an edge and people need to know that these podcasts exist. Right. Yes. So when I discovered Ted, I was like, Thank God I got out of the business when I got out of the business. And here's Ted telling you about hedge funds. Right. This guy who did this for a living saying, unless it's like not retirement money or not, you know, tax-free type of money, you're the sucker in the room. Yeah. Um, so anyways, there you have it. Uh, thanks, Knut. You are listening to Panic with Friends. I'm Howard Linson. Um handsome, uh, smart, uh, tall, 6'4". How tall am I? How tall are you? I'm 6'6". You're six six, yeah. I'm six feet, um, but I am shrinking. <laughs> I, I, am, I have not. I have lost weight, Canute. Yeah, and my pants don't fit, meaning I still can't get in them because every I'm weight's dropping into my waist. Your weight is literally dropping. Yeah, I'm a triangle at this point. I'm a triangle <laughs> with stick legs. So uh, a pair, it's a, a triangulish pair. So yeah, Panic with Friends. Um, well, that's generally a show about nothing, but we talk to investors capital allocators, hedge fund managers, traders, investors, venture capitalists, founders. And we just try and get a peek ahead, what he said, a peek around the corner. And uh, you'd be surprised how, uh, how you don't have to be that far ahead of everybody else. Anyways, you can find me, search my name on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, the tweets, wherever. Just search my name in that box on the web and go to Spotify or whatever, Google, and click subscribe, Apple. And you will get this podcast every Thursday. Knute and I coming at you, silky voice of Knute. All right, everybody. Oh, yeah. Talk to you next week. Howard
0: Linzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast
1: guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this
0: podcast.